Hello and welcome back. We're on the final episode and this is probably a really super exciting one to end on. I have Dan Ryan. I have come across Dan Ryan over the last couple of years. He is a retailer. Um, I came across him through a book club, I do remember, that we set up at one point. And Dan is very much um, all about retail. He's so much experience. And when you talk to Dan, you just go away off a phone call or off a Zoom and you just... You just have more of that knowledge. And I love listening to the stories he has. He's a retailer at heart. He's a startup investor and he's um, invested in really cool emerging companies, which he's going to tell you about in this episode. He's a mentor and he gives talks and um, speeches all around the world. So welcome, Dan. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Louise. Um, tell yeah, us a yeah. little bit about Dan Ryan, okay? So for anyone it was very hard to follow all of that now, but <laughs> uh, I hope I can do it justice. Yeah, um, so yeah, I classed myself as a retailer. Uh, I saw an ad for pennies many, many years ago for a training manager when I was uh, in Cork and uh, ended up starting uh, my retail career with pennies in Dublin in Mary Street. And I always say I had kind of three careers with them. I was in store operations. Then I got into the buying office, which I'll come back to. And then in the uh, latter part of my first stint with pennies, I uh, was in merchandise control. So I ended up uh, managing the buyers with their open to buy, a bit like pocket money for the buyers and all that. Uh, but I suppose in my store operations experience and my buying experience, they felt that uh, pennies uh, team felt that I could add value to that role. Um, then I got uh, hunted, hit on to, to go to Brown Thomas. Uh, they were actually the first store manager in Cork at the time. Um, and when they saw my CV, they were, were also in, implementing a new system in their buying office. So I went in there as a merchandise control. I often say that I went from the sublime to ridiculous as regards prices because we were selling shirts for $5.99 in pennies and then we were looking at shirts for £99 uh, in Brown uh, Thomas and dealing with all the brands and all that stuff. So it was a great experience for me to go from private label, high volume to understanding department store business and brands and the power of brands. So that was a fantastic experience. Um, and then funny enough, I never uh, fell out with the pennies guys. And I think this is a piece that I would always say about mine when I do talks about the importance of loyalty and not burning bridges. So when I resigned from pennies, it was a very, very tough time, uh, decision to make after all that time. I kind of grew up with them in retail. I resigned to Bridget Dunhu. So anybody who knows Mr. Dunhu will know how, how uh, intimidating it is even resigning to Bridget. Uh, and then I was asked to go in the following day, got a phone call at home to meet Mr. Ryan on Saturday morning, Arthur Ryan, God rest him, uh, to see if it could change my mind. And it was very, very tough uh, chat with him. But it ended very nicely because he said, OK, Dan, uh, you're like an old girlfriend. We split up, but we'll stay in touch. So would you mind Would you mind meeting me the first Friday of every month for a drink? It was like, well, of course, you know, I wouldn't mind meeting Mr. Ryan uh, once, once a month. Uh, the first Friday of every month, we used to meet in the Berkeley Court, which is gone now. And uh, he tried to get me back to Penny's a couple of times, but the third time he got me back. So I went back to Penny's to help with the European expansion, which was great. Understand how the Primark brand is better known. I uh, went into Spain initially and then Portugal. Um, and whilst I was with them, I had an approach to join the board of Lifestyle Sports. I'd, I'd met Mark Stafford, the, the CEO, in the previous uh, piece of work I did with, with Brian Thomas for him, helped him on something. So um, he asked me to join the board. I love sport. I love retail. So I joined the board of Lifestyle Sports for four years. 
very exciting time initially, but then the layman's brothers banking crash happened and we business was just went up to scale. It was so tough. Sales were down 20 to 30 percent on the previous year that year. And I became known as Dan Dan, the cancellation man. You did forward bookings with the likes of Nike and Adidas and all those kind of brands. You did forward bookings. So in other words, where we now were in July, you'd be buying for uh, the second quarter of next year. So it was called Futures. And this is the so poor that we had to cancel a lot of stock and not take in our commitments. And that was very, very difficult. But we weren't doing a retailer doing that. Um, and then I got headhunted to join a business in the UK called um, Shop Direct Group, better known in Ireland as Little Woods. They were migrating from a catalog business into understanding online shopping. The beauty for me at the time was that I knew bricks retailing, but I didn't know clicks. Little Woods is had sold out our store. So it was just pure uh, online with a catalog uh, business that they were migrating away from, which was a big challenge for them. This is in 2012, so about 11 years ago. And people were using phones and iPads a bit more for shopping. So I learned an awful lot about how, how you have photographs up on your website and returns and getting stuff sent back to you and all that kind of stuff and how you manage returns. Um, Unfortunately, and I should have seen it coming because I was asked to reduce my workforce by 20%. So um, I had to let a lot of my people go because they were migrating, as I said, from the catalog business to online. And there was a lot of people in head office at the time. And um, I should have seen it coming. I, I didn't last there very long only because the CEO and the product director left the business after a few months. And once I had restructured my team, the level I was at, which is the buying director, that level was also... Um, uh, how do you say restructured so three of us were combined into one so myself and a guy called Damien who's out in Australia doing very well for himself we lost our jobs I remember being in Liverpool airport in my early 50s going home without a job um, and I'd say this when I do talks in colleges and I've got not burning bridges I had two great referees I had um, Arthur Ryan from Primark and I had Paul Kelly from Brown Thomas and I reached out to them and said look Liverpool didn't work out and um I met them when I came back to Ireland and Paul offered me a role uh, to work with a business in the Netherlands called the Buying Corp, which is Dutch for, for BI. Um, and um, services have bought that business. So I worked in the Netherlands for a few years with the Buying Corp. And uh, then while I was away, Mr. Weston bought Arnott's. So I helped with the integration of Arnott's and Brown Thomas. And then a few years ago, coming to another stage of my life where I said, you know what, I'm going to step away from corporate retail um, I'm going to do a bit of stuff myself because when I was in the Netherlands um, I had to spend so many nights in Ireland to be domiciled in Ireland because I was being paid by the Septus Group uh, they also by the way assigned me to another job in Canada for a while which I'll come back to uh, but I was mentoring people uh, and the girls for instance the beauty buddy had, had asked reached out to me through LinkedIn and I thought I might do a bit more of that kind of stuff so I stepped away from the corporate world a few years ago kind of fell into being an investor in the startups just by chance and didn't realize I was an angel investor until I put some money into the beauty buddy app and I pitched so, for investment so that's really interesting so that that happened so you you got reached out to by someone on LinkedIn that wanted yeah. to be a mentor and yeah, then, well, Wendy tells a good story about that. She says when she saw a surname Ryan and saw I worked for Selfridges, it was a good chance I was Irish and would be interested in chatting to them, you know, to Irish girls. Wow. Yeah. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Amazing. And then so they reached out, they reached out to you 
to get this mentoring support and then you decided to do that and you what you really enjoyed that kind of work the- yeah yeah and I introduced him I remember having coffee with Wendy and you know there's a big I'm a big believer I used to have an old, another nickname called Dan Dan the action man so I, used to, I rang a few people while I had a chat to Wendy so wait 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 so- you're like again Dan Dan the action man oh brilliant it's a tag oh, 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 oh. that in the linkedin hashtag yeah anyway uh, i have a good load left too which I'm yeah i'm just to. i'm just getting an image of you in those do those action man boxes and you just stand yeah there. yeah sorry exactly, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so I, I made some phone calls on the spot so i rang some people i knew in the beauty yeah. industry who had moved on to other businesses yeah and the range said look please meet with wendy because the app is best described as trip advisor for beauty yeah um, and then Wendy kept meeting me and I got to understand a bit more about what she was doing in the startup world and raising investment and I offered them a small amount of money to keep the business going at the beginning and, and put an investment in and then when we were doing a big a bigger funding raise I did what was called a follow-on investment and uh, which I've, I've learned an awful lot about the startup world in Ireland as a result and then when I pitched for an investment to um for instance it's called HBAN in Ireland, H-B-A-N, the Halo Business Angel Network in the West of Ireland. By having put some of my own money into the business, it, it, it helped get people uh, in that room to be interested. And we ended up landing, we ended up landing an investor on, on, on that particular pitch. So we also got what's called matched funding from Enterprise Ireland. And so if you raise a certain amount of money privately, you also get a government support. It's called match funding. Um, and beautybody ended up being a what's called a HPSU high potential startup. So Enterprise Ireland are, are very good at supporting startups, particularly if they've raised money. Because as I said to you, I didn't realize I was an angel investor, but apparently because I put a big chunk of my own money in, you're 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 specified as an as an angel investor as a result. So that brings you to where I am now. So I'm involved with three companies now: the Beauty Buddy. Uh, PG Lean, which is an at leisure brand started by Sharon Keegan. And then I'm involved with a sustainable uh, clothing brand called Kokoro Zenwear, started by Sharon Barron. And then I do a bit of uh, mentoring and consultancy work um, under a brand that my niece put a logo together for uh, Amy um, called DR Retail. I don't have a, a website or a company name or anything, but I get a lot of work through word of mouth or through LinkedIn again, where people have found me looked at my background and the two things that I always say I can bring to the table for those startups and new brands and helping them is my my network because I have a big network in retail and also my experience that's why I have less hair and grey tinted highlights of my own (laughs) 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 that's me in a nutshell yeah really interested Dan, talk us through, I suppose, you, you know, you've, you've worked and you've worked, you've had such an array of positions. Cause you know, I mean, most people that are in retail, they go into buying, as you know, or they go into branch merchandising or they stay in operations. You seem to have gone into, which is quite unusual because I, I've been in retail. You've gone into literally all of those nearly. Those different, you know. I suppose in a way, uh, Louise, I was lucky. You could make your own luck too. So when I was a trainee with pennies. But did you uh, enjoy it all, I suppose, Jack? Yeah, yeah. No, it was fantastic. It was was fantastic. But but I managed, so when they take in a cohort of trainees, they send you to different stores and they take you away from your home environment. Mm. So I do remember 
the store manager in Cork interviewed me, Brendan Murphy, telling me that you wouldn't get your menus cooking anymore. You won't get a Saturday off unless you're getting married when you're going to retail. But I was assigned to the head office store in Bailey Street, where all the key, the head offices overhead, all the senior team were there. So I was kind of in the eye line of the senior team. They'd see me in the shop. I was transferred to Dunleary. I always worked between Beery Street and Dunleary. And when the buying office was being reshaped um, in Penny's Primark, they had a buying office in a place called Bracton in the UK. And the only department that was being bought for the Irish stores in Ireland at the time, when I joined them in the mid-80s, was menswear. But Mr. Ryan and the board felt that they could do with having a buying office in Ireland for all the departments. So they needed people to populate. And I remember Mr. Dunahoo. Bruce Dunne, who interviewed me or asking me, did I would I come up to the buying office? And I would never be in her office saying, Well, Mr. Dunne, are you asking me or are you telling me? <laughs> so I went up into buying administration, and one of the buying team um was out, was out sick at one stage, and I was asked to step in. And I, I had an early job in Cork in an office, and it's all balance sheets and balances and bags and costs. So I, I kind of knew the difference between a balance sheet and a balance. So I ended up and the truly in the deep end in pennies, I ended up buying forwards, and then I ended up uh, buying footwear, and I ended up going to the Far East, going to Hong Kong, going to mainland China, going to Taipei, Taiwan. So I learned an awful lot from, and it was a very, very young business, and we were opening a lot of new stores. So at the time, for instance, the Irish business was 55% of the pennies primary business. Now Ireland's only 10%. So I learned an awful lot about buying, and then like that they wanted somebody to manage the buyers with their financial stuff and I my numbers were quite good and quite numeric so they asked me to be the merchandise controller so as a result I've been very lucky that I started the store operations went into buying and, and one of the reasons why they put me into that merchandise control job is that they felt I had store operation experience and buying experience so I could relate to both of them and a buyer is emotionally attached to a product so my job was also to get the markdowns done, to get reductions of slow lines. And I had to be the buyer's conscious. I had to put them on the markdown list. And there used to be terrible debates going on. Yeah, Dan, give it a bit longer and all this. But it's my job to clear the slow setting line, which was a success and is still a success of Penny's Primark today. Get rid of the slow setting lines to make room for the new up-and-coming trends. Yeah. And as long as you keep your markdowns under control, mm-hmm. you'll be a profitable business. So you're right at I've ended up being in, and that's why I got headhunted for that job in the UK with Littlewoods. They had a private label business and they had a branded business and they found it very hard to get somebody with a private, uh, high volume, low price background and also understanding the DNA of brands and how to work with brands and how you have to really kowtow to them and, you know, listen to all how great brand they are while you're trying to get them into your business. And that's one thing I, I, I learned in, when I went to the Netherlands as well, with a lot of brands that we were trying to convince to come into our stores, but they were very slow because of the history of the buying curve. And you're trying to explain the Selfridges background. And by saying that I worked with Brown Thomas, quite a lot, their eyes would open up and say, oh, you, you worked with Brown Thomas. So it had my background and the stuff I've done, it certainly helped. Uh, and I really enjoyed it. And that's why I call myself a retailer. I've seen all sides of it. Yeah, the luxury and obviously the the yeah. the cheaper. It, it's different. It's different. For sure. It's a different yeah, beast yeah. for definite, isn't it? And then looking yeah. at startups. So how how when, when you're working with startups, Dan, you obviously you're used to working with big, large, large companies, big budgets. 
um, yeah. from a luxury and even from a from a high volume with 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 the likes of of pennies. So how do you then translate that into these smaller startups? Does that make sense? Because oh, yeah. Well, I suppose. Um, look, it's the, the same principles. It's very different. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But the one thing I would say that I've learned from pennies. Primark, Lifestyle Sports, Brown Thomas was uh, retail is detail, attention to detail. Watch your costs. So when we used to have monthly uh, profitability meetings with Brown Thomas, um, and you know if there was a cost line that was anywhere looking to be out of control, you know people were really, really get pushed, bring that back under control. So I apply the same discipline to to these startups. Think about your customer, first of all, and, and then your sales. That's very important. But then what your overheads. Uh, so, for instance, when we opened a pop-up store in, in Dundrum uh, with Peachy Lean, we were very careful about, well, what's the rent going to be? What's the rent and rates? You know, what are the utility costs going to be? Let's do some sales projections. Let's see what we think we can do so that it, it, you don't lose money, that your lease is washing your space. And... That's the, I suppose, the part that um, I would say that I've brought from my experience, whether it was with Ron Thomas or Penish Parmark, is that you've got to scale yourself. You've got to put your thoughts to suit your measure. You've only got so much funding. And, um, you know, in some of those businesses, like, for instance, with, with, with pennies, I was, when I was the merchandise controller, you only allowed to bring in so much stock every month. Uh, same thing with lifestyle sports. So, when you're dealing with uh, lead times from, from getting product made, whether it's from uh, China with uh, peachy lean or whether it's from um, the Lithuanian factory we use for, for, for Kokor Zenware, it's managing that cash flow about how much stock have you got, turning stock into sales, if you've got some slow selling lines, maybe do a promotion and all that. Um, so it's, again, watching that discipline so that you're not uh, waking up some morning realizing that actually you know, the, the cash flow is tight. I mean, cash flow is still king no matter what size business you're in. Yeah. And when I was with with Selfridges and with Primark and now with Peachy Lane and Kokora, we're watching your stock levels because stock ties up a lot of cash. Yeah, yeah. And it can be difficult for startups um, with, with product-based businesses because they need to buy the stock first before they sell it a lot of the time, Dan. Yeah, know? for sure. So it's yeah. that initial investment that they struggle with. So where, what kind of advice would you give? And, and I'm asking this question because I do find that a lot of people would, would reach out to me and they'd go, you know, they're struggling because they're trying to get money in the business initially to start it off. And I'm on about, Dan, companies that are, you know, they're, they're, they've maybe starting um, a skincare range or something like that. You know what I mean? Or an organic, um, you know, cleansing range or whatever that might be. And, and, and they're, they're struggling to get that initial investment in in their business. Is there any advice that you would give? Yeah, I suppose my experience is, um, first of all, make sure that you're, those people are, are exploring all the opportunities you get with your, say, the Leo, the local enterprise office, yeah, and with Enterprise Ireland, and making sure that you're getting every type of grant possible, every, you know, innovation voucher, whatever it may be. Um, that you do see people using a phrase called bootstrapping. So, how much of your own funds can you put in to, to get the business started? Um, what family and friends can you approach? 
Now, you have to be very careful about approaching family and friends because uh, you really want to take money from people who can afford to lose it um, and not leave themselves hamstrung because you've got a great idea and money in there. Um, and the only other thing I would say, which happened with me, I didn't know Wendy Slattery or Tracy Lieber from Anna, but they were tenacious in staying in touch with me. So you do need to use things like LinkedIn and business networks and people that you know to say, okay, I'm going to approach them there. So for instance, I was giving somebody advice lately in the, in, who had a, a range of clothing to do with the, the horse riding area. And there's a lot of very wealthy people in that area. And there's a lot of great stud farms. So my view approach to her was, look, you need to approach people in that network that you know, that you know uh, would invest in your, in your product. Now, at the same time, you need to be very, very clear about what your product does. So I always say uh, for people who are raising money and, and investing and, and, and pitching for money, First of all, you're going to go to a, you're going to produce a lot of decks because you're, you're tweaking a deck. And I was just before this call looking at some of the decks we had in the past. And I think, you know, definitely into double figures in Beauty Buddy, the decks you use. So you have to explain. So if you mentioned skincare, for instance, well, what, what is your, what problem is your skincare range solving? Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Maybe somebody has a particular problem with their skin. Your product is going to solve that. So you've seen a problem. You've got a solution and then. How will you monetize that? So what is the size, let's say, of the skincare market and what percentage of that are you going to take? Because if you're pitching for an investment, um, whatever about family and friends who know you, when you're in a room with strangers, they need to understand, they are going to be very slow to part with their money unless they feel that you've got something that resonates with them. And if you lose, in my experience, and I've been to, I've been on both sides of the table. So I have invested, I pitched for investment and I've been on the other side where now I'm a member of the Saudis uh, H band where I've seen pitches. And if you lose your audience early on, uh, that can be a struggle. And, you know, there's a lot of people, and I'm not being disingenuous to them, who have got great ideas about a skincare range or a Chimsburg range or horse riding range or whatever it might be. And they think that, that this is unique to them. Uh, and it can be as long as they have a story to tell around their brand. So, for instance, there's a handbag brand out there that I gave some advice to call my name is Ted. And they talk about the grandfather who lost a hand and how this is how he did all his leather work and all that kind of stuff. Sharon Keegan tells a lovely story about how she created Peachy Lean based on some challenges she had personally when she went back after her first child. Sharon Farron tells a great story about Kokoro because she's very, very passionate about the environment and bamboo and all that stuff. So, so you'll win your audience over by having a unique story to tell and raise and getting funds that way. But people are, and even now with, with, with the economy the way it is, utility bills and the war between Russia and Ukraine, there's, there's less and less money. In my experience, being invested in startups at small scientists, it's, it's difficult to raise money. And the success stories you see in the press and on TV and in, and in the printed press about businesses that have raised funding and all that, there's lots of companies out there still trying to raise raise funds. So you need to have a unique story. You need to be able to tell it convincingly and you need to be able to show to people that that there is people will will buy this product. Um, and and it can be a challenge, particularly if you're what's called free revenue, where you haven't even got any sales yet. That's one of the hardest parts 
to get uh, funding for, as opposed to if you're raising already raising money. Like we we raised some more money recently for PG Lee because especially during COVID and she was on Dragon's Den on the BBC. She got a lot of um, coverage there and a lot of sales. So we just raised some more money and we got some new new investors because the product is already uh, doing sales B to C direct uh, direct direct consumer. Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I think it's really, really good advice and um, what you gave there. And I think looking at the market share of that particular product assortment at the moment and seeing what percentage you're going after. I think that's really, really interesting. And I probably don't see that research being done properly enough um, with some startups. I think they're passionate about their product. They have a great story, but I think some of them are struggling with like the analytical side of it. Does that make sense, Dan? And the, the numbers. Yeah. It, a yeah. it, it does. And I would also say, and I'd be an example, like entrepreneurs by, by the name entrepreneur have certain skill sets and you do yeah. need, like what I found with myself is that I've often said to people that I've worked working with and ones that I've invested in, put, put your, your advisors on your deck. So it also adds some weight to your deck. And, you know, you'll have people, if you have a mix of skill sets in your business, there'll be the, you'll, it's the boring stuff, it's the financial stuff, it's the projections. And it's all very fine talking about the product. But most, I always say to people, you should have two decks at any one time, an investment deck that has the story of your brand, but also all the financial projections. And then a brand deck that just tells the story about your brand. So in other words, if you're trying to get into a retailer with your brand, they're interested in the, in the brand story. Um, then they won't be interested in your financial projections and all that kind of stuff because they'll take that as a given. But if you're looking for an investment, you have to tell your brand story at the beginning. You also have to tell what, where you're raising this money or to use it for. And then also have your 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 slide showing the the people who are advising you or who are on the bus who are in the business uh, and who've had background elsewhere. So for instance, you know have uh, I think the old days used to be the head of IT. Now they're either called CTO, it's the chief technology officer. If that CTO has a background with one or two other businesses, let's say that had an exit and sold, that adds extra weight to your business. And what I found with me, um, that people have used me because of my background, Primark, uh, Brown Thomas, Selfridges, Lifestyle Sports, it resonates quite a lot, particularly in Ireland, the UK, and maybe in mainland Europe. Um, maybe not so much. I remember we had a had a gig in New York with the Beauty Buddy gang and this guy we got 30 minutes with pointed at me and he said, you're nobody over here, you're nobody, nobody knows you. You guys have to have all this traction and, and get all these reviews. So it's interesting to get that feedback. Uh, but I would say, you know, uh, to the entrepreneurs who are starting a brand, use, widen the skill set you need so that you've got people covering your back from the point of view of the financials and the investment, and they can answer questions on your financial projections um, if you're pitching for for investment. Yeah, it's really, really interesting. So people that are starting off, getting those people with those varied skill sets done, even like nearly on a a voluntary board, or even if, you know, for whatever stage you're at in that process, at even an advisory level to help you just to gain that traction or to gain that strategy piece to grow the business. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we had an advisory board meeting the other day with Peachy Lean, and one of our um, board members now is Meg Lustman. And again, I'm not saying anything that you can't find in the press, 
Um, she's on the board of Ted Baker, for instance, and um, she's invested in the business recently. So she adds another dimension, you know, because, you know, in a previous uh, podcast that you did, I heard you mention the word being blinkered. You know, you can sometimes be blinkered about your own brand and you're, you're loving it and all that great stuff. And then, you know, an extra set of eyes would say, well, have, have you thought about this or have you thought about that? So that's where I go, and I've, I've learned a lot by even, by even listening in to other advisors giving it, you know, or, or to, or to um, pitch, pitches where they're listening to other people challenging some of the criteria around the pitch, and they say, oh, that's an interesting point, you know. So, um, so, so it is very useful, as long as you get the right people, and, and as long as it's what I always call constructive debate, not destructive. Yeah. And I'll also say to people who are in the startup world and have an idea, there'll be a lot of people say, oh, no, that will never work. And there'll be a lot of people saying, oh, no, sure. If you take Peachlin's example, I mean, she's doing a million a year. But she's up against oh, online out there with Sweaty Betty and Lululemon and Nike and Adidas and all those guys all have their own. So, so what's unique? And that's the other piece I would say. What's unique and what values and what community do you have around your brand? That seems to be in my experience, much more important uh, than it was years ago where people just bought something. Now, there's a lot of people buying things because they like the story behind the brand. And, and that's also a key thing to getting advisors on board. I mean, Meg will say herself, one of the reasons why she put money into Peachy Ling is that she loved the story that Sharon told. And also she loves the story, that's the fact that it's doing sales as well. Um, so, so don't, don't, don't resist getting help from, from people that you feel can help your business. Yeah, 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 definitely. Um, the, I suppose you've told a lot of stories about retail and, you know, you, you've worked in loads of different markets, Dan, you've worked like all over with different size. What would, what would be for you? with all your knowledge and experience has there any has there ever been any kind of key lessons where you have taken that learning it could have been in the workplace where something has happened good bad or indifferent and that you felt it kind of shaped you to bring you on the journey that has taken yeah. you where you were yeah I suppose it was interesting I thought the Dutch business I, I say this to some 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 college students that I talk to uh mm-hmm. out into the into the world the Dutch business was a very interesting business to, to, to join because I have predominantly worked in Ireland and the UK. And, um, you know, obviously there's differences in culture between the UK and Ireland. But it was very interesting to go into the Netherlands because previously that business had been owned by um, private equity. And then the Celtics Group bought it. And the Celtics Group is very much about premium department stores and brand relationships and all that kind of stuff. So what Paul Kelly did was he sent me over to, to the Netherlands and it was a bit like um, that old joke, the Irishman, Englishman and Scotsman walk into a bar because it's a Scotsman and an Englishman and myself at one stage over there. And, and we were kind of known as the imports into the Netherlands uh, by the local management, but didn't uh, realize so much later on. And I found in the beginning there was, and any, every nationality has their own pride. I found in the beginning that they were very resistant to feedback, uh, the Dutch management team, and found it difficult to, 
to to resonate with them. And I also heard afterward that I was known apparently as Paul Spy, that I came over from Ireland and 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 came in to the Netherlands for two or three days a week and then left again on the plane and then next week back again. But over time I, I managed to uh win their win their confidence over. And the key part for me was I decided to learn Dutch as an example. So um I got a book initially and I was reading this book and it was very I think that's right English to use where I explained how to pronounce the word but then I realized that there was also a CD that went with it so I always say it's a bit like anybody who knows that movie Shirley Valentine where she talks to a rock I used to talk to myself in my apartment with the CD and the book and then I insisted that the Dutch people held meetings in Dutch and I could ask questions in Dutch and they were very accommodating and they love speaking English the Dutch because they, they get the parts in English but it really really got me um, on board with them and I went to stores regularly um, I got to understand the landscape. So in other words, if you go, I didn't just go to the, the Beinkorf store in Rotterdam and The Hague or in Eindhoven. I would then spend time walking the high street. And if I spotted, let's say, Michael Kors is opening a new store, we'd feed that back to the buying team. They mightn't have been aware of that. Then I'd have Michael Kors, listen, guys, we, we promoted your handbag brand in our store. Now you're opening your own store. But also when we had regular meetings then with the team from uh, the UK, the Separatist team, um, it, was, it was so funny. I used to sit on one side of the table with Paul Kelly and the guys from the UK when they visited. And then one day Giovanni, the CEO, rang me one night and he said, Dan, I want you to sit on the same side as us. You're one of us now. And um, we had a joke about it that morning because they were saying, oh, there's been a transfer like in the football game. Dan has now gone to the other side. But it was a, to me, it was a great endorsement. I felt that I, and when I left the Netherlands to help with the Arnett's Brown Thomas integration, uh, and Mr. West about the Arnett's, a lovely send off from the CEO. And he said, you know, Dan, you were the only one that really uh, spoke Dutch and you're the only one that really got to understand uh, our culture. And I would say to anybody that goes to work in other countries, Get to understand their, their culture, uh, be respectful. I mean, if I go back to my time with Penny's Primark, even going to the to the likes of Hong Kong and mainland China, I was told beforehand, if you get handed a business card, make sure you study it and you're hold it a certain way, look at it, look at the eyes of the person that gave it to you. And, and that's very, very important in the agent. So I would say, um, get to understand the, the culture. When I worked in Canada, and um, for Hood um, Renfrew, which is again part of the Septus Group, there were some people there, nothing against people from New York, by the way, but there were some people there who were working in Hood Renfrew who were from New York. And I saw that the Canadians and the, you know, and the North America, the, the guys in New York, didn't know with jail together. And it was like a bit of this, you know, uh, Canada is uh, quite different from, uh, from North America. So it's understanding differences um, in culture. And again, I'm going to tell a little bit against myself now as, a, as an original Cork man. Uh, you know, sometimes you hear from people in Cork saying, oh, but Cork is different. So, you know, the Netherlands is different. France is different. Spain, you know, was different. When we worked, when I worked in uh, for Primark in Spain, for instance, at one stage, we sent product with the Spanish colors to every store that we'd opened in Spain. But there was some of them in, in what's called a Catalonia dis, uh, district, and they don't use the Spanish flag. So they were very unhappy that this product came in with the Spanish flag colors on it because they, 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 as far as they were concerned, they were Catalonian. So 
it, my advice would be get to understand the culture of the country and the company that you're working with if you, if you move outside Ireland. That's really, really important, I think. And I think that's what you've just said there. That's not only a lesson in business. It's a lesson in life, I think. It's, it's taking the time to actually know and, and be curious and, and, and find out more um, and, and care enough to find out more because many of us are, I don't have time. You know, and this blank yeah, yeah. approach because we're constantly. But I think it's it's that it's you know it's it's making that time to get to know, um, which I think is really interesting because you can see then how you formed these great relationships with people, as you said, you didn't burn bridges, you you kept that those relationships there, you valued them, but you invested your time in them because I can tell by somebody that's learning a language going into a new country that invests time, that's yeah. because that relationship sure. is an investment in itself yeah. yeah and at the time that dutch business was going through a real feeling of transition they'd been owned by private equity not really been asked very many questions whereas paul kelly and the Septus people are very much into brand relationships they were also in a bit of a catch-22 they were i would describe them without any disrespect to these brands now that debenhams and house pleasure with some premium brands particularly in amsterdam uh, kind of caught in the middle ground and what we were getting them to do was to be a more premium department store and they were a bit resistant to that and they had uh, an event every year called the, the, the Three Crazy Days Three Dag and Basel and they were uh, very slow to drop that and it meant a lot of turnover and sales to their business but it wrecked the store they were just a mess there was just these thousand people coming in so to get them to move on to a premium and, and explain how you don't have to have long summer sales or winter sales, people like new stock, people will buy um, premium brands. You know, it, it took a while. And by being able to say, well, look, I've gone through all this, because when I joined Brown Thomas, they were rebranding and, and changing a lot of their business time. You're too young to remember this, Louise, but there was a business called the Switzer Group that Brown Thomas had bought. So it was Moons of Galway. Moons of Galway. And he had Todd's and Limerick and Cashes and Corks. Yeah. So over time, those businesses got, uh, yeah. got went through a lot of change when I was with them under the stewardship of Paul. And so by bringing that sort of experience and, mm. and, and showing to these guys, and when results came about that, uh, meant this, these things worked. And, and there's not people bought into it over there too, to be fair, but they weren't all resistant. It really, now if you ever Google the buying core from the Netherlands, you see very, very positive stories about that business. We closed um, five, what we call fashion moda stores, five small fashion stores. And again, it was, what was interesting about that, again, again, how small the world is, three of those stores were sold to Primark. So I actually helped swap those stores over to Primark. And I remember we had to make sure that they were really nice and the shell of the store was really, really perfect for when Primark would take it over. But I knew people in Primark, so I said to them, look, if there's any glitches, any problems towards the end, give me the heads up beforehand rather than escalating it and there's a big row about it. So that was very helpful to have those kind of contacts in Primark. And I used to see them on the plane going back and forth, and uh, it was kind of kind of funny in a way to visit those stores to see the Primark. Um, and I remember again, just give an example about the importance of networking and, and, and being on the shop floor a lot. When Rotterdam opened, Primark and Rotterdam opened, it opened right opposite the Bank Hall. So I decided to go there on the day that Primark opened. And when I got into the Bank Hall, in the cafe was um, 
Mr. Weston and Paul Merchant and a couple of other senior execs from Primark were taking a break from the store being open to just have a coffee and also have a look around the bank off and see what the bank off were up to. And, and Paul Kelly was delighted that I had met them and uh, welcomed them to the bank off and wished them all the luck with our Primark store. So again, it's back to that piece I said earlier about, from my point of view, networking has been, has been very important. In business, yeah, I, and I totally agree with that. I think it's 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 getting out there, telling your story, like you said earlier, yeah. and telling your story. And I think it's it's connecting. We connect. We're we're really good storytellers. The Irish, we're brilliant. We're known for it. Yeah, um, yeah. So it's, you know, it, it's telling that story. And I think it's connecting with someone. You know, you connect through emotional stories. You, you build those bonds. Um. So yeah, no, it's been really interesting. We're we're coming to the end, and I want to ask you one last question. What do you feel? Um, retail's gone through a lot of changes, as you know. Um, there's a huge push with Omnichannel. Um, through COVID, a lot of independent retailers and SMEs that weren't driving the online were pushed. They had loads of support through the government initiatives. What? Where is the future with online? Because obviously a lot of the bricks and mortar, I can see it here in Galway myself, Dan, a lot of the, the units, the commercial units in Galway City Centre are vacant at the moment. Um, and kind of talking around, given maybe, you know, smaller, newer brands, um, pop-ups, um, looking at things like that, just to reignite the city centres and smaller places because Galway isn't a Dublin it never will be a Dublin but just to bring people back in footfall into the city centre not just eating in the in the restaurants and the pubs but where do you see kind of retail going in the next couple of years? Yeah I think um, I mean Covid taught us a lot I think it accelerated where online shopping uh, growth rate certainly the percentage of sales that were being done online yeah. certainly accelerated that the other side of it was when stores reopened again you know there is in my experience there's room for bricks and and clicks and i do think you know and i, I listened to a, another podcast you did where this whole piece about and i saw it in amsterdam i lived in amsterdam for five years where people could live above, above the, the, the shops so you know it's important that city the city centers have a life and that stores aren't empty. And I was in Cork uh, recently and I saw a lot of stores empty on Patrick Street. So I do think the government needs to maybe just, again, look at the incentives and, and what sort of rents and rates can you can you do to incentivize people to open stores? Uh, it, can be, um, it can be a challenge to open a store and think about what rent and rates you've got to pay before you even start. And then also about the whole piece about public transport and getting people in. I do think there's there's always going to be a mix, I think, uh, between online and, um, and and stores. And I do know, for instance, one of the businesses I worked in the past, Lifestyle Sports, when I was with them, we just had a brochure or a website uh, in 2008 because we really couldn't afford to have a transaction website. And Lehman Brothers banking crash had happened. Now there are online stores, the number one store, except um, even though there's lots of business online, a lot of it is is click and click in the stores. And the important piece there is in the early, early days, and I still think it, it's a little bit out there again still today, there's a there's a bit of a disconnect sometimes with the stores. They feel that the online is taking business away from them. And I really think it's up to the retailers to promote that this, it's what they see in the store resonates with what they've got online. And like, for instance, we're in uh, the business, a good example. We used to give the stores, we cut the country into segments. So we used to credit the stores with, online sales from their area and that really got the buy-in 
Um, so I think there's two, two, two parts to your question. Number one is making sure that a retailer who has um, bricks, and, and, and Next is a great example. I would, all, I would encourage people, that you can get them on the web, to read the Next uh, when their public uh, accounts come out. They talk very much about how the stores and their estate will shrink in size going forward, but never shrink away completely. And how, for instance, a lot of returns go through their big stores and how a lot of uh, click and click goes through their stores. And again, a good example of an Irish retailer uh, I know who's, who's gone into a whole click and collect now is, is Shaw's and the guy called Gordon Newman doing a bit of work with them, who did a lot of work with lifestyle sports. So, so I think it's the omni-channel experience. You have to have that um, and, and have a good uh, online um, website that replicates what you're doing in the store. And I do think whereas the local councils and the local government, they really need to make sure that we don't take the heart out of um, the high streets and, and, and promote, even if it's pop-up stores for busy times of the year and maybe give them a rent-free area, whatever it may be, just incentivize them to come into the city. Yeah, yeah. And I think people what people still want, we, I hear a lot of people talk about, it's. Yeah, I think people that aren't in the retail space say to me, oh, Louise, like, what are you doing retail training for? Shouldn't should there's going to be no retail shops? I'm like, oh, no, oh. no, no, I do laugh to myself because like there will always be a need. There will always be a need for for retail stores. I can just see it. And I think the online is just an extension. It's just another touch point. So having an app with your, with your brand is an extension. It's just yeah. you know they're all customer touch points and they're interlinked. Yeah, it needs to be interlinked and as seamless as possible. So you know I'm talking to you or shops don't we don't close the shutters at 6 p.m we're 24 hour business now because we've an online store we've a social media piece if you have an app for your brand that's another place where we you. Yeah. so i think what i see the big scope with retailers is um and you see kind of the bigger brands rituals cosmetics do this really well where they've created a community around their brands. Like I just thought it was really, really interesting. So they have their app. You can buy their products, but they give you free healthy eating recipes. They give you mindfulness tools. They give you meditations and they promote well-being as part of a byproduct of what you buy in the stores to create a spa experience at home. So I think it's about that. When I look at a brand, it's the brands that seemingly hold is the ones that create a community because that community then brings you together. Yeah. It's funny um, you say that because the beauty buddy, I mean, one reason why I was really interested in that mm. as an app, because it's like TripAdvisor for beauty. You can scan the barcode in the beauty store yeah. and look at what it can do for you. And the girls at the time were trying to buy a makeup person. They couldn't find the, you know, which woman suited them. But they've got a community now of independent reviews and the community is so important to them. The community is so important to, to also to the PG Lean. I mean, there's a lot of stuff on social media um, with Instagram and TikTok and all that kind of stuff and the same with Kokoro. And it, that's a part for me that's been a big learning curve too, is understanding, yeah. okay, you've got the online website, you've got the brick store, but you also need to be active in social media, talking about your brand, talking about its values, doing these mm-hmm. reels, um, my kids know more about this kind of stuff now than I do but I yeah. love watching those things and seeing yeah. the likes and yeah. seeing if you do a shopping event at night time uh, that people resonate with the person that's that's doing that 
Yeah, and I think if you look at Uno O'Hagan from Mars Pharmacy, she's a brand ambassador for that pharmacy group. And that's a really great way, I think, for businesses, retailers to look at the way she, you know, she doesn't need to create. Uh, I love her debates the way she talks about even hiring people. Yeah. She talks about, look, we're looking for a new condition. And the way she talks about it is just... You know, you want to go work work for her. Yeah, the passion, you can feel it through the screen. I just think, and we had Una on the podcast and I interviewed Una and what really stood out to me was for a pharmacy chain, um, the way she was driving brand values, behavioral values in the organization, you know, all of these key deliverables. and, And I've worked for companies where there's 800 stores and she's way ahead of her game with that. Yeah, like, so, yeah. you know, and I just oh. thought that's what actually yeah. makes a brand last yeah. is that that real good culture. But that structure around what does that good culture look like, which I think is. Sure. is anyway, it's interesting, you know, we talk about big businesses. I was in yeah. New York recently and I, I, was, I had a shopping list for a friend of mine. Mm. Uh, so I was in a support store and um, I knew a different man to be in the beauty store, you know, but it, it, I'm, I'm fine with all of that uh, with my background. And the first thing, when I asked this brand, the first thing to say of the Sister City was, we don't carry the full line here. So she was already on a negative. Like, as if to say, well, if you're looking for this particular item, instead of saying, um, we, we carry some of the range and the rest will be online, um, or we can order it for you, because you didn't know whether I was a visitor or not. But the, the opening line, and then I'm saying to myself, this Sephora will probably have all these corporate ideals and values and training mm-hmm. and here is someone on the front and I'm passionate about customer service I could do it front line yes yeah, so customer service she lost me yeah at, at that comment now I still she still showed me where it was mm-hmm. and and then left me and then mm-hmm. and then their program at the tilt to say to you did anybody help you today and I felt like saying no yeah uh, it's so interesting because, to done isn't it so but it's so interesting because I speak to people and, you know, managing directors and, and you know, HR departments, L&D. And, and, and the thing is, you can have the best brands, right? You can have the best marketing department, best buyers in the world. But the, the customer will only understand the personality of your brand by that person speaking to them on the shop floor because they are the brand. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that's one thing I... I and really learned so that from Alan Thomas in the early yeah. days. Like, I, I, we had a guy who was selling a million, million a year, and Tony was his name. Someone up to Tony one day, and I said to him, Tony, what's your secret, you know? And he said, I'd always read the newspaper in the morning, see what the headlines is for the day. And then when the person would come in, I'd start chatting about that. And he, he lived and breathed. Icebreakers. It's like those know? great icebreakers. Yeah. You know, when you're training yeah. people in and, and some people, some people, it's harder to stroke up the conversation. We go, what are you going to talk about today to the customer? So it's really interesting. He invested in those opening conversations to make it interesting yeah, yeah. for the customer. So this and he is, was great then, you know, when he, when someone yeah. looked at a suit, he'd always say that that shirt would go great, but he had a very subtle way of yeah. the add-ons, you know? Yeah, and, yeah. Um, it was conversational selling almost, story selling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing. Um, it's been really great to talk to you today. Um, we've talked about... You too, Louise. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for the invitation. You're very good. It's great. Thanks a million. Great. Thanks for coming on. Um, Dan, where can everyone find you? Um, LinkedIn, I'm, I'm assuming. LinkedIn is, uh, is the best way to get me, yeah. Yeah. And um, 
yeah, that's probably the best way. Yeah, to, the best way. So I don't have, a, as I said, I don't, I don't have a website for the DR retail side. Yeah, but, I don't think uh, most people advice. follow me through um, <laughs> most people follow me through LinkedIn, and, yeah. and it's to my mind, it's been a great. It's piece fantastic. Of, of, yeah. of, of, of to, to use. I often say to people, look, it's sort of the Facebook of business. When I hear people saying they're not on LinkedIn, I said, look, you should, especially in the early part of your career, or if people are searching for contacts, so reach out, send it, send an invite. Yeah. What, what harm can it do? And then engage exactly. with the person. The worst thing you can get is a no, isn't it? Move on. Exactly. That's it. Thank yeah. you so much, Dan. If you want to reach okay, out, it's been great. Thanks, Civilian. Check them out on LinkedIn. Thank you so much, Dan.